You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing uh, this week? It's still snowing out there. Yeah, I know. I, I noticed that as I plowed through these snow drifts that have piled up on your porch. You know, it doesn't really do you that much good to have your little, like, welcome mat thing for people to wipe their feet off if it's under about, like, six inches of snow. You know, I shoveled that porch this morning. I don't believe you. I'll have you. you know. I don't believe you for a second. Well, I don't know why I would lie about it. It's... In fact, an actual fact. Because you're ashamed? <laughs> no, man. I went out there right after I got home from dropping my daughter off at school, shoveled the walk, and shoveled the sidewalk. I just As I was doing it, I was thinking about how I was putting it in your face, to be honest with you. <laughs> I was like, today, when Ben Folks shows up for to record the podcast, he won't be able to say shit about my shoveling. And yet, here we are. Well, I hadn't counted on Mother Nature. The weather gods <laughs> yeah. came around to, to get me again. Uh, tomorrow, you are going to Albuquerque. That's right. On a uh, trip for MMA Junkie. Will you be uh, producing a series of lifestyle pieces about the Greg Jackson's mixed martial arts uh, team down there? First of all, I know that you, you throw around that lifestyle piece shit to try and belittle me. Hashtag lifestyle piece. Uh, it's caught on. Other people are using it now. But I don't you, know if you've noticed it. you fucking love my lifestyle pieces. You love them. You can't get enough lifestyle pieces. Admit no, it. There's nothing I like more than 5,000 words about where the MMA sponsor banner came from. That's, that's just my idea of a Sunday morning. First of all, it was like 2,000 words, and you didn't know. You didn't know where it came from, you asshole. It felt like 5,000 words. Uh, ben, this week's music is something a little bit different than we've ever had before uh -oh. on the on the podcast. It comes to us from listener John Farah, who is a Canadian composer and pianist living in Berlin, huh. who sent us an email. So he's a classy week. motherfucker then. Yes. That's what yeah. it sounds like. He sent us an email last week saying that he's a closet MMA fan. He doesn't want to tell his uh, pianist friends, right? Because he's afraid that they'll mock him. Yeah. Well, if you're a classy motherfucker, you you have to keep that stuff quiet. But uh, he says he listens to the podcast as he composes music. Wow. And uh, he sent us this week some, I guess you would say it's modern experimental uh, electronic music. Maybe it's definitely there's definitely some electronic aspects. You're just saying like the names of music genres. You're just throwing it all together. You don't yeah. know what it is, do you? No, I have no idea. You just have to listen to it, man. Okay. See for yourself. Anyway, if you like what you hear, you can check it out at, uh, check more of it out at johnfara.com. Uh, we'll put a link up on comainevent.com once we get the show posted, but, uh, it's definitely going to give a different vibe than we've ever had before. I'm, I'm all for it. Three rounds this week, as usual, for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, hey, you know what would be really cool would be if we could find out a way to figure out who would win in a fight between Ronda Rousey and Sarah McMahon. Maybe next year we can get that done. 
And in round number two, Patrick Cummins has over 40 opponents drop out of fights with him. He's a guy that nobody wants to... Oh, never mind. And in round number three, what will be said now at Caesar Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, now that Gilbert Melendez has motherfuckers coming by every hour on the hour to pamper his shit out? All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but right now, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Fred Bargaris. Nailed it. Pretty sure I nailed that one. Yeah. He says, can you talk about the pros and cons of a fighter's union? It seems like health insurance, post-fight career finances, uniforms, fighter pay can be addressed or at least standardized with a union. I'm sure there's an obvious downside, but it would be a great topic. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about it. Yeah. Fred, now that you... Now that you wrote in to ask. This one basically puts the discuss at the beginning of the question rather than the end. And Mix, that, mixing it up. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's really innovative. I yeah. like it. Um, I think that this is in the news again this week. You know, we've, we've had more stuff from George St. Pierre still up there in Canada talking about his problems with the system of uh, drug testing in MMA. And we also had Nate Quarry, uh, former uh, UFC fighter and number one middleweight contender, came out and uh, – I believe first put a post on the UG and then did a couple of fairly wide ranging interviews uh, with a couple of different sources where he essentially uh, laid out his grievances against the UFC, although I think did it in a fairly like level headed and respectable way. Yeah, uh, didn't even draw the ire of the UFC too badly. Uh, not at least not as bad as as you would expect. Yeah, you because you would expect Dana White to immediately be like, what, what what do I care about some guy who got knocked out by Rich Franklin? What do I care what he thinks? But I mean, shows you why people are listening to Nate Quarry in the first place because everybody kind of regards him as a level headed dude. Yeah, and so you know we always have this this idea of a fighters union come up, and I do agree that it would be probably the best thing for. Uh, mixed martial arts fighters at large. I think that, uh, you know, a, a, a large scale collective bargaining, uh, agreement and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the ability for fighters to sort of act as one with one voice would probably be one of the only things you would ever, uh, see that would even have a chance of, of getting the UFC to kind of open the books, let us know what's going on financially inside the company, which is, uh, the most important thing that that we would need to know, because otherwise we have no idea, you know, all of the discussion of, of fighter pay and stuff like that is all sort of moot until we find out what's actually going on, uh, you know, inside the company. Uh, that said, though, it's really hard for me to imagine a scenario whereby a fighters union actually comes into existence yeah. and actually works. Well, um, and, the, you know, there's some like practical questions, too. Like, would it just be a fighters union of like UFC fighters or like all MMA fighters, including Bellator and World Series of Fighting? Because there's just so many different tiers to this sport that are pretty noticeable. I mean, how can a fighters union, you know, like as soon as you have a pro fight, are you in the fighters union? I mean, how, how, does, how would that work? That's yeah, you, well, you would almost need to have everybody to make it workable, to make it a, a worthwhile endeavor. And I think that that's one of the things that makes me think it'll never happen because, you know, not only are you dealing with a very individualized sport here uh, where everybody is kind of out for themselves and makes their own money. And not only that, but pr pretty much to be successful and to compete as a professional in the sport, you have to believe that at some point you're going to be the champion. Like right. every single guy and, and woman at this point involved in the sport believes that they're going to be the champion and that someday they 
they're going to be the guy at the top of the card getting the pay-per-view money. Yeah. Everybody believes that, which I think makes it hard for them all to get together uh, in, in a collective bargaining situation where it, it may well turn out that the guys at the top needed to take less money so that the guys in the middle and at the bottom could make a living wage. Well, I also think that maybe we don't think sometimes about the cons that would come along with it. I mean, you look at uh, one of the things that has been holding back drug testing, like improved drug testing in the NFL, and it's the NFL Players Association. I mean, that kind of stuff could be an issue for MMA. Uh, and it could also just be an issue where one of the good things about kind of having a, uh, a strong central power in place in MMA is that it kind of forces some of those fights that we want to happen. You know, even if it was like teammate versus teammate stuff, just keep hammering away at those guys until until they agreed to fight. And it could end up in a situation where like boxing, where every big time boxer becomes a promotion unto himself, basically. And it's hard to kind of get them into the ring when you want them. Uh, that same kind of thing could happen with, with the fighters union. However, the benefits to me still far outweigh the potential negatives and sure. the, the benefits to the fighters, especially like you mentioned, you know, health insurance, just being able to speak with one voice on sponsorships and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, right now you hear this from fighters all the time. Like they are afraid of uh, reprisals from the UFC. They're afraid of saying anything that'll piss the UFC off because they know that individually they don't have a whole lot of power. Uh, collectively together, they, they wouldn't have to worry about that quite as much. Right. I and I still question, though, whether you'd get everybody that you needed to be part of it to, to actually join up with the, the idea of being in a union. I mean, there's a, a fairly prominent strain of uh, of firebrand conservatism in uh, in the fighters world. And you're I, saying John Fish wouldn't, I'm, wouldn't I mean, join up? Jake well, Volkman? Yeah, I, I think you'd have a hard time getting Chael Sonnen and Pat Militich and, you know, uh, uh, Volkman and guys like that to join up with this thing. And in order for it to work, you would pretty much need to get everybody or at least get uh, enough people so that the people who weren't in it started to feel like they were the outsiders and not the other way around. Uh, the other thing that I think, you know, goes unmentioned a lot when this topic comes up is that we shouldn't forget that the two guys who own the UFC uh, also own one of the largest non-union casinos in Nevada. Like these dudes are among the more vocal anti-union businessmen in, in Las Vegas. And these guys uh, are pretty much used to throwing down on a daily basis with a national, a very powerful and influential uh, culinary union. So to me, to think that a ragtag group of fighters would suddenly show up and be like, oh, hey, man, we're going to have a union now. Like, it's hard for me to believe that the UFC front office would sit by and let that happen. I think that they but don't you think it'd be a terrible look for them to be seen as like opposing the creation of a fighters union. I don't know that they would have Send to the dudes into billy clubs. I don't know that they would have to publicly oppose it. And even if they did, like like they would give a shit, man. They do so much stuff that they don't care what anybody else thinks about it. But I mean, just think about uh, the, the public reaction to uh, John Jones when they canceled UFC 151. Uh, and, and, uh, the next, you know, they did that, uh, conference call where Dana White totally buried John Jones and half of the fighters that showed up on Twitter immediately in the aftermath were like, what the fuck, John Jones, thanks for fucking me, man. <laughs> like, it seems to me like if there, if there was the prospect of a fighters union that the UFC could break it in like one day with I think some it, shenanigans. I think like you said, it, it depends who is leading the charge on that. I think if you had a, a couple superstars, a couple champions, and I think that maybe guys like George St. Pierre or, or even guys like John Jones, uh, if they're realizing like, hey, 
you want to really leave a mark on this sport? You want to really have like a legacy other than just, you know, the number of dudes you, you beat up in the cage? Something like this, man. That that would be something that uh, people would never forget you for. And just improve the lives of all the people who came after you. But like you said, tough to get them to stick together rather than just, you know, the initial push. The second question this week comes from Jason Peckham. So yeah, I can do that one. Jason Peckham, that's easy. I believe it's Peckham. No, come on. <laughs> what do you guys think about a twice a year randomly testing fighters that are in or get into the top 10 of each division? They could each be tested for the whole PED panel, steroids, HGH, EPO, etc. It would be significantly cheaper, easier than testing the whole roster, at least as a start. Uh, we talked about this very thing, didn't we, last week? Like, well, kind of brought this up. This was your idea when Dana White had his flip phone open uh, and was demanding somebody to name him some fighters, saying, hey, name 10 fighters and I'll have them tested. And your idea, which would have been awesome, was for somebody to just say, all right, let's pick a division and do the top 10. And I see what he's getting at here. Like, hey, if it's not cost effective to randomly test the whole roster, then do the top 10 and it'll kind of keep everybody honest. One of the things that made me think of, though, was uh, when I was a freshman in college and I went to the University of Redlands before I got smart and transferred to San Diego State University, which was much more fun. Uh, and I played football at the University of Redlands, and it was a Division three school, so uh, they were not – we didn't get, like, drug tested by the NCAA. The only way you would get drug tested, if I'm not mistaken, is if you made it to the national championship game in Division three, which was not even – like a an option that was not even something that could happen nobody was worried about that even if you made it to the playoffs i don't think you got drug tests i think it was only if you made it to the national championship game and as a result of that kind of stuff uh steroids were fucking rampant on that team i mean and it was open like people would just talk about you know it was obvious who was on steroids and you know you see one of these seniors who's a defensive lineman and then after the season's over he knows he's never going to play any more football suddenly he loses 60 pounds and looks like a regular human being i mean it was just we knew that you know the threat of like testing eh, that could happen if we are really really good but it probably won't so might as well you know everybody just do whatever the hell they want i could see something like that happening where like oh hey i only have to worry about it if i get into the top 10 well, one way to get into the top 10, I guess, is to juice up and beat the shit out of everybody, and then I'll worry about it when I get there. That seems like one potential downside there. I heard Ben Folks was juiced out of his mind back at University of Redlands. If I was, I might have actually gotten to play in a game, which I did not. <laughs> it just looked like Ben Folks' head on top of Dave Batista's body back was, in those days. I was juiced out on natural ice. You're that's what, that's what I was on. D-line back in those days. Uh, you know, I still think that they should test everybody. I think top 10 is a, well, is a nice idea and would certainly be better than what we have now, but I would just like to see it added to everybody's UFC contract that, you know, some independent agency is going to come in and randomly test you like three times a year and you have no idea when it's going to happen. And above and beyond that, you still have to participate in state athletic commission testing whenever you have a fight coming up. Uh, and I guess the, that we're, that maybe that's not cost effective, but, uh, it's also, I mean, I don't believe it. I think it, it would be. I think they could do it. In that scenario, what we're trusting the UFC to uh, to do its own out of competition testing, and then you know tell us about it when it catches somebody and right. take action. I on I think it? that the only way that it works at all is for them to sign up with a with an independent uh, testing agency, yeah, and and have someone who's not involved in the company run the run the testing, and then also Dana White wouldn't have to personally show up in Dagestan to test you know whoever they needed to over there, like he said that one time, which just couldn't be done. Yeah, 
He has way too much going on. He can't he can't go around and test all these guys personally, which is obviously what we're asking for, right? The next question comes to us from John Joe Carter. Uh, it's a quote. It says, there will be a structure for sponsorship with every, where everyone makes money and everyone is going to be happy. A, co- a quote attributed to Dana White, December 12, 2013, doing press for UFC on Fox 9. Then there's a second quote that says, that's not my problem. He's a fighter. He gets paid to fight, period, end of story. Whatever extra money he makes outside of the UFC with sponsors and all that shit, that's his fucking deal. Attributed to Dana White, February 20th, 2014, doing press for UFC 170. Two months! Two months it goes by. <laughs> and then John Joe Carter asked the question, where does this rank on the all-time list of total position reversals by Dana White, and should he be called on it? Seems like he's already been called on it by a few people, because uh, that one is pretty obvious. Two months goes by, and it, before it was like, okay, we're gonna, we realize the sponsorship thing is a problem, uh, we're going to fix it. Uh, and it, it appears that the fix was deciding to not give a shit. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you can read between the lines a little bit, and if you believe the the recent reports that were out there about, uh, you know, the possibility of a UFC uniform coming into to being, which there were some some reports at, of that nature a week or two ago. Uh, as the last we heard, Dana White said that there is no deal uh, for a UFC uniform, but at the same time, that could really mean anything. Could just mean that they don't have one signed yet. Uh, and so, you know, I, I would read between the lines and say that the idea that they were going to quote unquote solve the sponsorship thing for everyone meant that they were going to have some kind of UFC uniform that hopefully everyone would get paid to wear. Uh, and then the, that it w- would even out some of the sponsorship money and f- above and beyond that people would be free to have some limited space on their shorts and or UFC uniform that they could sell individual sponsors by themselves. But at this point we still don't know. And, uh, it does seem like uh, a fairly significant about face in just about two months' time. Well, and you can't make the the argument that it's not your concern when it is your policies that are making it difficult for fighters to get sponsorships. I mean, it used to be that you'd hear it all the time from fighters that, hey, I made more in sponsors for this fight than I did in my pay from the UFC. You don't really hear that anymore. Uh, and it's because, you know, the, the sponsor tax, for one thing, just keeps a lot of sponsors out of the space, lowers the price down for, for everybody, makes it harder on, uh, especially those guys, you know, if you're fighting on the fight pass prelims or you're fighting on a fight pass card, now it's really tough. Like now you're trying to convince some clothing company that, okay, you should pay this exorbitant tax just to have the right to sponsor me. And then you should also pay me money to put logos on my shorts while I fight on the internet. Right. And I, you know, I had always read uh, $50,000 for the sponsor tax. I saw something last week that said $100,000, which I don't know if that was right or not, but uh, if they've doubled that thing, which again, we don't know if that's accurate, but uh, boy, it's hard for me to, I mean, 50,000 seems like a ton of money to me. It seems like you could never put up that much money and expect to get any kind of return back for uh, sponsoring a fighter. And it sort of blew my mind last week when I saw somebody had written a hundred thousand. Well, I've heard different things from different uh, sponsors and different managers and stuff. And some would say, okay, it would be this much for like six months or something. Uh, and it seems to be case by case, you know, that uh, it kind of depends what industry you're in. Like you're, the dynamic fastener guy, I wrote about that in one of my lifestyle pieces. I'm sure you read it. Hashtag you lifestyle piece. Uh, he doesn't get charged a sponsor tax at all. He says if they did start charging him the sponsor tax, he wouldn't do it. You know, it just doesn't, wouldn't make sense for him to do it. Barely makes sense for him to do it now. Uh, so, you know, you, you couldn't blame a lot of other sponsors for feeling that way. But it, when the UFC is, you know, making a lot of like, it can't be like, hey, sponsorship is not our fucking problem. 
By the way, this guy's going to step into the Metro PCS prep point or whatever the hell it is, uh, and then you're going to have to watch an ad for a movie video game during the pay-per-view that you bought. I mean, clearly sponsorship uh, is a concern of yours uh, if you're the UFC, uh, and now you're just kind of saying like, hey, let the fighters fend for themselves. Uh, That's not going to go over well. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or a concern for the co-main event podcast in the future, you can air it to us by going to the website comainevent.com and clicking the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, anybody who listens to this show, I think, knows that nine times out of ten, I I, I side with the referee uh, in mixed martial arts. But the stoppage in the UFC 170 main event between Ronda Rousey and Sarah McMahon struck me as uh, early. And as I commented to you at the time that it happened, it seemed like one of the more premature stoppages that I've seen in, in quite some time. I guess to, to open up this round where we have an awful lot of ground to cover about about this fight and the ramifications. Uh, did you think it was an early stoppage, or are you just going to go along with the company line that this was a fantastic big win for Ronda Rousey where she got the first TKO of her career, and oh my god, her striking looked amazing? It was an early stoppage, I thought. I mean, I can understand how uh, Herb Dean saw that and thought that the fight might be over and I think that though even like the way he kind of moved in to stop it seemed to suggest some indecision about it yeah if Um, you're a referee and you're gonna have an early stoppage you should at least look confident about it when you just kind of like flutter your arms around and and take a step in there uh that that doesn't make it look that doesn't sell it to anybody let's just put it that way especially when Sarah McMahon immediately passes the what the fuck test right well and you know here's one of the things I thought about and I was starting to to write something and kind of came up with like this, I think, is a good indicator of like imagine how we would be talking about this stoppage if it if the roles were reversed. Right. If Sarah McMahon had taken the women's bantamweight title with the exact same stoppage, need Ronda Rousey in the liver, she goes down, you punch her three times in the face, uh, Herb Dean kind of sidles in there. Like, do you think Dana White would be calm and, and rational at the post-fight press conference explaining how, you know, hey, he thought it was a good stop because people don't understand how bad a liver shot can hurt? No, man. He would be losing his goddamn mind. A vein would just be bulging out of his forehead as he, he called for, you know, a complete uh, overhaul of the Nevada State Athletic Commission and, you know, trying to bring Herb Dean up on charges. Like, he would have lost his mind over that if, if, right. that, if that had been reversed. I mean, I think right. one of the things, though, like, that makes people not so freaked out about it is that they felt like, well, Ronda was going to win anyway. Which is uh, the wrong way to think about an right. athletic competition, right? Well, and we've seen like we we've seen situations like this, like the Travis Brown and Alistair Overeem fight, very similar, right? He gets kneed in the body, he goes down, looks like he's done. Give him a second, he gets back up and he wins the fight, right? Well, I think to get to a place where you have a justifiable a justifiable stoppage in a fight, you have to reach a point where the outcome of the fight is self evident, right? You know, and I don't think we got there. Uh, in this fight, would we have gotten there if you had allowed Ronda Rousey to punch Sarah McMahon in the face? 
three or four more times, maybe. Yeah. But, you know, we didn't. I, th- I thought we were still at a point where anything could still have happened in this fight when, when Herb Dean stepped in, and that was the real shame, I thought. Uh, you bring up, I think, an interesting point about the UFC's reaction to this stoppage. We had a bunch of people on Twitter like bring up that same question that you brought up, how the, the UFC would have responded to the end of this fight if Ronda Rousey had been the loser and not the winner. It's always hard for me to... Uh, discern how calculated the UFC is on these points because clearly Dana White never comes off as calculated. He always comes off as uh, kind of a loose cannon for lack of a better term. Like he's just going to go out there and tell you exactly what he feels no matter what. But I mean, when you really stop to think about this stoppage, uh, one of the things that strikes me is first of all, you can't do anything about it because Ronda Rousey already has a vacation schedule. She's going to (laughs) go film a movie. It's not like you can tell uh, the boys from Entourage to hold off on filming that movie while we come back and do a rematch. Yeah, uh, that, it, that Knight Rider remake is not going right. to wait. The other thing that strikes me is that, like, it's kind of the uh, the positional decision, I guess you would say, or like kind of the right move for the UFC here to want this to be a definitive stoppage. Because if you're going to have your dominant female champion, like, not be around for the next six months you want to send her out on like a definitive victory man you don't want this hanging over her head the whole time she's out there you want to to uh cast this as a, a dominating performance of ronda rousey's striking and the first tko of her career and then you want to, to get her out there on her vacation uh so you can go ahead and move on to the next step with uh you know who's next well and who's next i think is a big problem especially because like I watched that that Sarah McMahon fight. For one thing, you see Ronda Rousey. You can see that there are weaknesses in her game. It's like she's just really not too difficult to hit. Right. I mean, to her credit, she doesn't really seem to mind getting hit that much. Uh, but she just seems like so much more like physically dominant than everyone she fights. Which I thought was one thing when you know when you're fighting Misha Tate and it's hey, an uh, Olympic medalist versus somebody who wrestled in high school. Yeah, you should be you know athletically on a different level. But against Sarah McMahon, it seemed like okay, here's somebody who might be able to match like her athleticism and her strength. And nope, not even really close. Uh, yeah, I mean she did she did a uh, I mean for the minute and six seconds six seconds of this fight took like she did kind of a better job i think than a lot of people she didn't at least she didn't get thrown ass over tea kettle right, right. she 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 uh, appeared to defend ronda rousey's first two tape that takedown attempts which was all you had because then fight know, less than a minute and six you, you had the stoppage i mean i just think that for me this fight was inconclusive and from what we saw in the first 66 seconds i still think sarah mcmahon is one of the people that i would like to see fight ronda rousey again i still think that she physically matches up with her uh maybe better than anyone else in the current UFC 135 pound division uh and she kind of like I don't want to say she put it on her in the striking department but she definitely blasted her a couple times before uh before Rousey succeeded in muscling her up against the cage and again it kind of ended so quickly from that point that uh I don't know that we got a really good idea of whether or not Ronda Rousey was kind of able to physically dominate her uh, I think she was I mean Sarah Mann couldn't really get off that fence and, and couldn't really get out of that clinch I mean you're right she landed some punches but didn't seem to bother Ronda Rousey too much. I mean, that is the one thing that where you can hit Ronda Rousey. Uh, it's just that in hitting her, you're probably going to let her get in too close and then you're in deep trouble. I mean, I, watching too, like you look down uh, at the card at uh, Alexis Davis and Jessica I, that fight where supposedly that one's supposed to help us determine like who might be a next challenger for Ronda Rousey. If not next, then, you know, down the line and in, in the near future, you watch that fight and, 
I mean, competitive fight, but I think either one of them gets absolutely smashed by Ronda Rousey. Right. She seems so far ahead of everybody. Yes. And I mean, I think that's going to be a problem because, yeah, it's one thing, uh, she's MMA's biggest star or whatever you want to say about her. Uh, and she does have a lot of charisma and a lot of people are interested in her, but she needs like a real challenger. She needs a rival like she had in Misha Tate. I mean, right. that was one of the things that really helped her get on the scene. You can't really do that anymore with Misha Tate. That thing is done. You know, what are you going to do? Right. You need somebody that where it seems like it's actually going to be a fight. And it doesn't seem to be a whole lot out there right now. Well, not in the division, not in the UFC division right now. Let, let me say as an as an aside before we move on to uh, the Chris Cyborg Justino question uh, that, you know, the, the stoppage obviously wasn't Ronda Rousey's uh, fault. And no. I don't want to take anything away from her because uh, she did, I think, show us a couple of things that she hadn't really showed us in the past. And that is that not only, like you said, is she really athletically uh, superior to most of the people in this weight class, but uh, give her credit also, I think, for being a smart fighter and for trying to develop a uh, an MMA skill set that really complements the existing judo background that she had, uh, you know, almost in, in a way that kind of reminds you of Randy Couture in a right. way, like getting in, she talked about it in the post fight, but like getting into that clinch game and really working some, some dirty boxing and like knees to the, to the liver that eventually did, uh, prompt the stoppage, uh, which I, I think that's great for her. I think that's a, a smart way to go in terms of like trying to give her a little, a few more options offensively rather than just, you know, hip toss arm bar. Right. And I mean, a lot was made of her, her boxing game coming along, but you know, yeah, if you have a great judo background, you don't need to be working too hard to develop this boxing game from a distance where you're going to be standing out there throwing punch combos. You want to be punching your way in and, and develop a good clinch game to where then, you know, you have a couple things to threaten people with. It's especially impressive. I don't know if you watched any of those BJJ Scout videos uh, where he kind of breaks down uh, Sarah McMahon's game. I mean, that's where she usually wants to be is in the clinch with people. And she got in the clinch there with, with Ronda Rousey and, uh, you know, was starting to, to look like she was getting tossed around a little bit. Like she didn't really have much offense from there. Uh, and you know, we saw what happened. I mean, you're right. It's not something you can blame Ronda Rousey for. Uh, it, I definitely think that the UFC's reaction would have been different had it been the other way around. But I mean, and I guess as a good, uh, runway into the the cyborg justino conversation it seems like the overwhelming perception out there right now is ronda rousey is you know the ufc's golden goose they 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 love her want to want to have her around want to protect her and the thing i keep hearing over and over from people rightly or wrongly the perception is there's no way they'd let her get in the cage with, with cyborg it would be too risky for them uh, I I agree with you that that is the perception, and I think the perception is that they want to protect Ronda Rousey, and I but I don't think that that's true. Uh, and maybe I don't know, maybe it is. It is a little weird that Dana White kind of wants Cyborg to prove she can make 135 a couple of times before they bring her into the UFC. Well, he has several different like points that don't all necessarily work together. I mean, it's weird how Cyborg's one steroid test failure is a sign that she's uh, a dirty cheater and always will be. Uh, Vitor's one steroid test failure followed by uh, the testosterone exemption, you know, not really that big a deal. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, it's the one legitimate women's super fight that you can make. I, I just can't believe that the UFC wouldn't want to do it. It would be, you know, clearly the most marketable fight that's out there for Ronda Rousey. And if she is your quote unquote biggest star ever or whatever, I would think that you would want to book her into the most lucrative fight that you could uh, make 
for her. And, you know, I, I don't think it would be a given that, that Cyborg would win. I think it might, she is one of the, one of the women out there that I think certainly poses the biggest threat to Ronda Rousey. But at the same time, if I'm the UFC, man, I jump on this thing right now while Ronda Rousey is out on vacation, uh, sign Cyborg now, bring her in, uh, and put in her contract that if she fucks up cutting to 135, you're going to cut her immediately. And as far as I'm concerned, book her in a fight against Sarah McMahon, because I think that's your perfect, uh, title eliminator to set up somebody for, for Rousey when she comes back, because if Cyborg wins, obviously she's, then is established as a, a person who's, uh, you know, belongs in the big show and someone that's even more dangerous for Rousey than we thought before. And if Sarah McMahon wins, then you can always just say, well, she kind of got jobbed on that stoppage and here she beat this other woman that everybody said was the greatest. So she's the number one contender again. Uh, I know that the so-called experts say that Kat Zingano probably is still going to end up being next, despite the fact that, uh, you know, she had the knee injury and now uh, is dealing with the death of her husband. Uh, but much like Alexis Davis, and I feel bad for saying this because I think Kat Zingano seems like a great person. I don't think that she really has anything for Ronda Rousey athletically. I think that that she would fall victim to very much the same kind of fight that Alexis Davis would fall victim to. Well, I think that she would stand a better chance than Alexis Davis. But I also do think that, you know, Kat Zingano last fought, what, last April when she beat Misha Tate? And then she's out with the knee surgery. Like you said, the the death of her husband, Mauricio Zingano. Uh, to come back from all that and jump right into a, a title fight with Ronda Rousey after more than a year off, that is tough. Right. I mean, that would just be, it seems, too much to ask it of anybody. It seems like Kat Zingano, if she's ready to go, should probably fight Alexis Davis, I would think. I'm just, I'm just armchair matchmaking it right now, but like, it seemed like that would be, you know your number one contender fight if that's what you wanted wanted it to be well if you uh, could get Kat Zingano back quickly enough I mean I, I talked to Ed Soros for uh you know we did kind of a story about what Ronda Rousey's options are for the the paper today he says Kat Zingano could be ready uh, as early as June uh although that you know at this point in her recovery could always be pushed back or or, or whatnot he said late summer which Ronda Rousey mentioned as, as a good time to fight would be pretty much ideal for them uh, but I don't know, man. I mean, that's, it seems like everybody kind of agrees Kat Zingano earned that shot and deserves it, but to have to come back after all of that and fight Ronda Rousey, I mean, it would be, you know, a tremendous story if she won, but that is kind of the, the deck stacked against you there. I think that what's going to happen is it seems like the UFC is softening on the cyborg question. It went from no way her manager's an idiot and she's a steroid cheater to I don't know. Hey, if all these following things happen, then hey, maybe we'll see. I mean, and that already is already an improvement. I think that though eventually you're kind of going to get to the situation where you don't have much choice. I think it's going to get harder and harder to sell Ronda Rousey in some of these fights uh, because she just seems so much better than everybody else. And as much as people love her, if it doesn't seem like it's going to be much of a fight, I don't see people continually paying out, you know, shelling out 60 bucks uh, just because she has this, you know, winning smile and is a Diaz brother and a beautiful fucking body. Yeah. I, I personally, I think it's going to happen. I think it'll happen this year uh, at some point, as long as, uh, Cyborg doesn't mess around and lose to somebody else, which is another reason why you want to get her in the UFC, because every day that goes by that they're not in the same organization, it seems less and less possible. Uh, all right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? for this week? Well, Chad, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? has to go out to UFC octagon girl Ariane Celeste. Oh, interesting. I know, and I don't even really want to do this, because usually I would prefer it if we could all just act like... There are no octagon girls. I think it's kind of a silly part of the sport, and I think it's even sillier that they are like quasi celebrities and people act like, 
you know, it's really important to find out what they think about stuff because it's just a weird thing. Uh, what do you think about Michael Sam? Anyway, Ariane Celeste took a shot at Ronda Rousey uh, saying, quote, I don't really like the way she carries herself. I don't think she's a good role model for women. Oh, ouch. I think that women should empower each other and give each other a little pat on the back, which, first of all, yeah, Ariane Celeste, that's your reputation, is known for somebody who is uh, really uh, an empowerer of other women and totally not someone uh, who might actually seek to undermine other octagon girls if you didn't like something they said. Uh, and also, you're tell- you are going to say that Ronda Rousey is not a good role model for women? You wear a bikini and a robe to work. Ronda Rousey has a skill. She is an Olympic medalist. Chad, you and I, we both have daughters. Now, I'm not saying that Ronda Rousey would be my ideal role model for my daughter. I mean, I think you know Sarah McMahon probably makes a better role model than both of them. But if I had to choose between the two, Ronda Rousey and Ariane Celeste, so who I would want my daughter to try and emulate and be like, it's not even a choice. It's not the girl who walks around holding a, a numbered sign above her head for a living. You fucking kidding me with this? How are you role model for me? women. Wearing a bikini to work. Well, Ben, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to Bellator cruiserweight champion Quentin Rampage Jackson. Some late-breaking news to the co-main event podcast. He went on the Sirius XM satellite radio MMA show with RJ Clifford and Lou Thomas today and said, and I quote, If the UFC gave me $10 million to fight in the UFC, I wouldn't fight for them. Are you fucking kidding me, Rampage? You know, go on the show, say everything you've got to say. You've got some valid criticisms to make of the UFC. Say them. Make those criticisms. But, man, you don't got to lie. We know if they offered you $10 million, you'd do it. Come on. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? He would fight a buffalo for $10 million. Come on. How's the buffalo's cardio? Terrible. (laughs) Just awful. If you can get that buffalo to the ground, man. Yeah, take him to the deep waters. It's heel, heel Hook City. Uh, all right, well, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, as you put it, Daniel Cormier fought a coffee barista in the fucking co-main event of UFC 170. Now, we heard in the days leading up to this bout a lot of, I'm going to say, questionable justifications for why it was not a totally ridiculous matchup to have Patrick Cummins, a guy who's 4-0 against nobody, come in and fight Daniel Cormier, who everybody seems to agree is one of the elite talents in the UFC right now. And then he went in there, got absolutely tooled, and we immediately abandoned all that stuff and acted like it had never been said on the broadcast. Yeah, it was kind of a zero to 60 turnaround there in in terms of the old nobody wants to fight Patrick Cummins and 40 opponents have dropped out of fights they had scheduled with Patrick Cummins, which that's a lot, man. I don't even know how you have 40 fights booked. 
You know, like uh, I don't know if there are forty light heavyweights <laughs> in the world who fight MMA outside the UFC. Uh, so that we shifted gears pretty quickly from saying that you know uh, Patrick Cummins was a guy nobody wanted to fight to then uh, after he gets blitzed in like a minute and nineteen seconds, uh, segueing really quickly into well, that was the kind of performance Daniel Cormier needed to have against a guy like Patrick Cummins. Can't really be both, I don't no. think. Uh, and he, I guess if there's a uh, silver lining here at all, it is that. Uh, the UFC says it's going to give Patrick Cummins one more fight that he can have a uh, an actual training camp for. They have uh, to. And yeah, at that point, maybe we can find out exactly what kind of Patrick, a fighter Patrick Cummins is. Because uh, clearly we all knew it was going to be a uh, a tough order to step in against a guy like Daniel Cormier on like a week and a half's notice. Uh, and, you know, regardless of how the fight was sold, uh, it certainly played out that way. Uh, but, you know, the, the, and there clearly has been a lot of, of criticism uh, heaped on the UFC for this, for making this fight. And I think that it, that's deserved. Uh, it's, it's not, was not a competitive fight. Didn't look like a competitive fight on paper. Uh, but if we can say anything in defense of uh, Patrick Cummins, like that dude, he's not really a guy just off the street. He is a guy who has some skills and was, I believe, a, 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 uh, a national placer in wrestling after walking on it at Penn State um, and a, a guy who clearly w- was regarded as a guy who on the independent circle or independent circuit was a, a, a dangerous and well-regarded guy. So it's not like he was an actual coffee barista, even though he w- did have a part-time job making coffee, but he was a fighter. Like he wasn't. Cool. Is that, so is that what it takes now? If you can say that you legitimately are a fighter, then boom. No, and I I don't want to make it sound like I'm coming out in favor of this match because clearly I was not. Clearly I thought that it it was going to be a walk in the park for Daniel Cormier, and it was. But, like, you know, they made it on a week's notice. Daniel Cormier basically begged them to find him somebody to fight because he had done a training camp and cut to 205, and then Rashad Evans got injured. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to act like it's the biggest travesty in the world. I would have acted like it was the biggest travesty in the world if they had booked this fight from the beginning. If they had been like, oh, good first opponent at 205 or Daniel Cormier? How about Patrick? Cummins. Uh, right. That's clearly not what they wanted to do. They wanted him to fight Rashad Evans. Didn't work out. They kind of had to scramble. Would it have been better for them to keep DC off the card entirely? I don't know. Maybe. But they didn't do that. The UFC. I think one of the reasons they felt that they couldn't do that is because the card would have been so weak. You'd have a really hard time selling pay-per-views if you'd done that. Right. Which is uh, pretty much the new reality of what we're dealing with with UFC shows and, and maybe a different discussion left for a different day. But to me, uh, I mean, a lot of this, I think one, it kind of proves the power of the UFC marketing machine like in a kind of evil genius way uh, that they actually got some people to go along with this idea uh, and built it up to where it actually felt like something uh, even if you know people didn't necessarily agree on what that was and you look at what they were doing to sell this thing and it was just ridiculous like the things that they were willing to reach for like oh, okay well he did well against Daniel Cormier in training and then uh, Joe Rogan has seen him you know ragdoll nameless fighters but hey trust me i've seen him train and he's really really good and this guy absolutely deserves to be in the ufc we won't even mention then the follow-up question so why wasn't he in the ufc uh the whole thing about 40 opponents pulling out you know like this this real kind of william wallace legend tale uh and at one point Joe Rogan looks in the camera talking about all the this physical stuff Patrick Cummins do does what a athletic specimen he is. He actually said as a as a reason to believe that this guy would be a good test for for Daniel Cormier that Patrick Cummins does stuff like riding mountain bikes uphill. 
that right there that's, that's that's what you do except for when you're riding back down the hill or riding on level ground riding uphill is one of the ways that you ride mountain bikes i guess if you're tough as nails wait uh, maybe patrick cummins like has a side job where he rides other people's bikes uphill so that they can just ride down because they're too much of a pussy to ride up the hill i still don't know how you have 40 opponents drop out like isn't this dude only like 29 or 30 something like that like how like most of those guys would have to drop out instantaneously for you to even have time to book another fight to get to. I don't know. Seems like we would have heard about it before, too, right? Yeah. 40 opponents. Yeah. Anyway, like let's talk a little bit about Daniel Cormier at, at 205, even though I'm not sure we, we learned anything we didn't know about the guy beforehand just from this fight. Uh, clearly this was a guy that he should have beat the living daylights out of, and then he totally did. So I guess in that regard, we didn't find out anything negative about Daniel. Right, he didn't fuck it up. Uh, and so he looks good at 205 physically looks really good. Looks big. Looks, uh, doesn't look, you know, physically outsized for the weight class anymore. Seems like he's going to be a problem at that weight. Yeah. Well, and I mean, maybe that's the thing that really bothered me about the matchup is because it seems like, man, Cormier at 205 is a really exciting prospect. Like, didn't look sucked down at the weigh-ins. Didn't look like he was giving up anything by going down in weight. If anything, just made him, you know, quicker and a little sharper. Really excited to see what he can do. But also, you know, Daniel Cormier, it's not like he's 22 years old and got, you know, the decades ahead of him. Like, you know, he's 34. Like, he's got to kind of get moving here. Uh, and so it seems like we're kind of wasting his time with stuff like Patrick Cummins fights. But, yeah, I mean... It, it, like you said, they, they did want him to have have him have a fight against Rashad Evans. I guess the thing is now, like if you're thinking about where does Daniel Cormier rank in the UFC's light heavyweight division, you're basically just still speculating. Like you, you didn't get a chance to, to find out anything that we didn't already know or suspect uh, against Patrick Cummings. So now it's it's basically just... Well, we thought he was good. Turns out he's pretty good. I don't know. Is he number six? I don't know. You know, like you just have no clue. I mean, it seems like... You could you could justify putting him into a, a number one contender fight or even a title fight if you had to just based on like potential and just based on what we think he can do. Right. I wouldn't be. You know, if they came out next week and said uh, Cormier was going to fight the winner of uh, of Glover Tashira and John Jones, I wouldn't be mad at it. But I guess I guess then I would you have to admit that you wouldn't. You wouldn't have taken issue with them just doing that when he came down from heavyweight, right, which I probably yeah. wouldn't have. Well, uh, I think, but then it, it sucks all the life out of that uh, Gustafson Manuel fight. You're really excited to buy fight pass for. I'm, wait, wait, what's happening? <laughs> no, man, they're going to take Alexander Gustafson and hide him away on the internet and have him fight some guy. Let's just do DC, man. Let's just go DC. What do you think? No. No. Oh. All right. All right. But, but hey, what if if Glover Teixeira got hurt? Right. Had to pull out of that fight. And they're like, all right, well, guess what? Daniel Cormier barely broke a sweat against Patrick Cummins. We're going to throw him in that title fight. I don't know if a whole lot of people complain about that I'm other than Alexander Gustafson. And nobody will be able to hear him complaining because he'll be stuck on the Internet. <laughs> the streaming wouldn't just buffering. That's all I'm getting. Uh, I'm going to come out and say I'd be more excited. Yeah. If Glover Deshira dropped out and it was going to be Daniel Cormier and John Jones. Let's here's a question, a listener mail question that we had. We were going to do earlier in the show during listener mail, but we kind of ran long. But uh, it's about Daniel Cormier and Patrick Cummins. So we might as well do it now. It's from Kevin Stianchi. He writes, Daniel Cormier made one hundred and sixty thousand dollars to beat Patrick Cummins, who made eight thousand dollars and would have presumably made another eight thousand to win. Cummins would have made more money by Cormier missing weight and collecting 20 percent of Cormier's purse than defeating feeding Cormier. Isn't that alone enough of a reason to raise the minimum fighter purse? Now, 
regardless of the like the big ticket questions, like the umbrella questions here raised by the fact that Patrick Cor- or that Patrick Cummins came in and got paid eight thousand dollars, or that Cormier made one hundred and sixty grand That's the easiest payday of his life. Yeah, uh, it kind of seems like it uh, highlights the dark side, maybe, of Patrick Cummins getting fired from his part time job at the coffee shop to come in and make eight thousand dollars. Because even though the uh, before taxes, I guess right. I should say, and for paying out, you know, his, his managers and. and- Coaches and all that stuff. Right. So let's presume that the, the UFC paid him 150% of that, which is uh, a good ballpark from what we've heard uh, from fighters who, who have talked about what they actually got paid. And I, so they paid him 12000 let's say. Uh, he pays taxes on that. Then he pays out everybody else. Yeah, the UFC is going to get him another job or get him another fight, but that money is not going to last very long if <clears throat> all you're doing is is fighting in the UFC, he's probably going to have to go back and ask for that coffee shop job back or, or you know, find or some similar. other kind of gainful employment since he could be sitting on the shelf for like six months waiting for this next UFC fight to come Well, around. and it, it just seems like a kind of a bad deal for him in a lot of ways because, hey, for all we know, he might, like, develop into uh, an awesome fighter if you give him the chance. But then you throw him in there on, like, a week's notice against a guy like Cormier. He gets beat up. Uh, then what are you going to do with him? Like, if you take him and put him up against, uh, you know, somebody really low down on, on the rung, or, you know, take him, put him up against that, that Al Capone guy who says he's going to go to 205. I, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his name. Uh, you know, you kind of then signal, like, well, he obviously wasn't the caliber of fighter who should be fighting in the co-main event against a guy like Cormier, and we knew that all along, and so here, you know, but then what are you going to do? Are you going to put him up against, what, Shogun or something? Uh, because you're going to pretend that he's a light heavyweight? I mean, it kind of puts him, like, in a really rough spot where, yeah, you're able to seize this opportunity and, and kind of cash in this lottery ticket to get in the UFC, but now you're here, and, you know, the clock is ticking. Like there's not going to yeah. be a whole like, yeah, you're going to get one more chance to show them what you can do, but it's not like they're feeling especially kindly toward Patrick Cummins after he kind of came in there and made them look uh, like they were, were hucksters by putting him in the fight to begin with. Ah, I'm not going to blame him for that. That's their, that's their fault, man. Uh, anyway, but to me, it do, it's kind of speaks to uh, what must have been Patrick Cummins' desperation to get into the UFC at this point of his career and kind of speaks to the MMA landscape that you could have a guy agree to fight Daniel Cormier on a week's notice for $8,000. Like, I think in a perfect world, if someone calls you while you're at work and wants you to come in and fight Daniel Cormier on a, on a week's notice, you say, yeah, yeah, I'll do that for a hundred thousand dollars, right? Yeah. Like, wouldn't, isn't that at that point? Don't you think feel like you've got them over the barrel in in a perfect world? But it's not like that. No, if he well, says no, he never gets another chance, right? Well, and it makes you think of that, like the thing that Nate Quarry was talking about, right? Like he said, he fought uh, Rich Franklin for ten thousand dollars, I believe it was ten thousand yeah. dollars. Came in there and got knocked out by Rich Franklin. It was and, a different different era. And though. see, that was the thing. That was Lorenzo <laughs> Fertitta's response: was Hey, that was a different era. We were in debt and all this other stuff, and everybody was kind of like, okay, well, that makes sense well here we are uh in the brand new era the booming business era where we got offices on all kinds of continents and zipping off in private jets and hanging out in abu dhabi and stuff like that the dude fighting in the co-main event granted you know it's not like he worked his way into a title fight quite like uh nate quarry did but dude fights in the co-main event makes two thousand dollars less than that so i mean I don't know man you can't have all those arguments exist right alongside each other simultaneously yeah, well, we'll see what happens with Daniel Cormier. Uh, 
kind of hard, I think, to find that guy an opponent at this point that, that's going to really do anything for him, even though he still hasn't really fought anybody at 205. I mean, you have to find somebody at the at the top of the game to have him fight. Hopefully, maybe they can still make it work with Rashad Evans or something like that. But uh, short of that, I'm not sure... Uh, I'm not sure who would be a, a win that would that would really blow your ears back with with uh, Daniel Cormier now. Um, anyway, that's probably going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, I think you got to chalk it up. Gilbert Melendez won UFC zero at this point as uh, news broke. When was it? Yesterday? Late last night? Late last night. That uh, the UFC had indeed uh, decided to match the contract offer that Gilbert Melendez, we reported last week, got, got offered by Bellator. Uh, and so Gilbert Melendez, in the end, stays in the UFC, which is a thing that he wanted all along, and picked up a boatload of concessions from uh, his employer, not the least of which is that I guess he's going to go coach uh, Tough 20 opposite Anthony Pettis and then fight for the lightweight championship. So I know you talked to him yesterday. Uh, gotta believe El Nino is pretty happy right now. Yeah, he came off sounding like a dude who had just come into a bunch of goddamn money. Uh, sounded pretty damn pleased about the So he was drunk thing. and at the strip club then? No, I was drunk and at the strip oh, club right. doing the interview. It's possible but... we have different lifestyles. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you're right. Like, it, just a couple weeks after Dana White makes this thing about, hey, I'm done with this contract. And tell him to look elsewhere. You know, we better talk to Lorenzo if he wants to make a deal fast. Uh, and then to hear Gilbert tell it, you know, he's on the a conference call with his management team and Lorenzo and he hears that, you know, he's going to get what he wants. I said he had to put him on mute so he could celebrate without uh, <laughs> without them realizing it. Uh, but yeah, man, I mean, it does. For one thing, it just really makes you think about like, OK, this is why it's important that fighters have options. Right. That the UFC yeah. is not the only big promotion out there because otherwise there's no way. There's no way he's able to do this. Like he has to have like this viable option of like, hey, all right, fine, I'll go sign a deal with Bellator. And granted, that's not going to work for everybody because you know people have different market values. But uh, without that, without that option, uh, this story plays out very differently. And as it is now, I mean, it kind of just goes from the UFC acting like Gilbert Melendez is is being a dick for hardballing him to okay, we do really want to keep Gilbert Melendez. We need that guy, so we're going to give him what he wants. I mean. Great, great ending for Gilbert Melendez. And can I have his management team come with me the next time I need to negotiate the price of a new car? Because it seems like they know what they're doing over there. Yeah, I saw. I can't remember who it was, but we'll someone, walk right out of here right now. <laughs> someone on Twitter made that comment that uh, you know, for all the abuse that Gilbert Melendez's manager took this week, after we'd all wrapped up, it seemed like he did a pretty good job. Yeah, it seemed like you might want that guy on your side. <laughs> yeah, well, this is one of the few times that I can recall a fighter sort of going head-to-head with the UFC and appearing on the surface, at least like he came out of it as the winner. And like you said, I I don't think that that's going to work for everybody, but uh, it certainly strikes me as a win for Gilbert Melendez and uh, strikes me as a... uh, 
you know, kind of a win for Bellator in a, in a weird way, uh, because I feel like it puts them on the map in a way, uh, that maybe we hadn't considered them that much in the past as being a company that can make viable offers to guys like Gilbert Melendez and under different circumstances, maybe land them as a, as a big name free agent who's going to come in and bolter the lightweight class. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you hope that it also is a positive for fighters at large to see that like, Hey, you know, if you're willing to, uh, play a little hardball, sometimes, sometimes you do get a better deal. Uh, and then other times maybe you end up going to fight for Bellator. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I guess you got to be prepared. And Gil Orlando said that he was said that like, you know, he didn't really want to leave the UFC, but felt like, Hey, you know, you got to get paid. You can't do this stuff forever. You got to take care of your family, perfectly reasonable positions. Uh, and, you know, if that's what was going to happen, then then he would live with that uh, and was willing to to take that chance. And I think that that's that is the kind of thing that you hope other fighters are paying attention to, and you hope they're paying attention to the fact that like, hey, look, you can get in these negotiations and they can get contentious, and you know, the UFC can get on state-run TV and talk about uh, how you're you're totally screwing it up and you must not want to fight good competition, uh, but. And stick to your guns and good things can happen for you. I'm curious, though, about like how you said that, that maybe it's a good thing for Bellator. Because, I, I mean, if I'm Bellator, I don't want to just become like, you know, the car lot across town that everybody threatens to go to if you don't, you know, work with them on the price of this Audi. I don't know if that's necessarily so great for Bellator. Well, I mean, I, mean, I, I guess think that's the reality of where you're at. I don't well, think that they're going to be any more than... than the second car lot in town at this point and you force the ufc to pay their guys a little bit more and you know if you're you're sitting on what is it 50 kajillion dollars if you're viacom right so right if you really wanted gilbert melendez you could have just cut him in on the five billion in cash i guess uh but you know i mean i think that it's kind of a positive thing for Bellator. clearly it would have been more positive if it would have been able to land gilbert melendez but uh it it does like this is one of the one of the times or one of the few times at least that i can remember where it seemed like bellator was a, a player in a contract negotiation Association. I mean, maybe Gilbert Melendez just used Bellator, uh, which in the rear view is maybe how it looks. But at, at the same time, I, I feel like it does in, in, increase uh, Bellator's profile a little bit as a, as a company that's at least going to uh, throw its hat in the ring to try to get these guys, you know, and isn't just going to settle for uh, uh, taking the Rampage Jacksons of the world, that it's going to it's going to be interested in guys who are uh, among the elite in the UFC and, and, you know, maybe under slightly different circumstances has a chance to bring one of those guys on board. Yeah. And like we said last week, when we we're talking about it, it at this point, if you're Bellator, you got to make that play. Like you got to try and get some of these guys. Otherwise you're just saying, Hey, we're going to stay uh, number two with a bunch of Russian dudes you never heard of. And, and we're content with that. I mean, if you're in that fight with the UFC, you might as well get all the way in it. And it would have been nice to, to land Gilbert Melendez. I mean, I wonder though, if uh, it's one of those things where, you know, one fighter is not really going to make a, a huge difference. It seems to me at Bellator, cause you need other guys for him to fight. And lightweight is the division where they have the most talent already. But I wonder, I mean, do you think it's it's a better idea for them to try and just like gradually build up their own people or is poaching, you know, one fighter at a time from the UFC a viable option to get somewhere? I just think if you're running a, a mixed martial arts organization with aspirations to be a, a, 
a recognized leader in the market that you go after a guy like Gilbert Melendez if you get the chance. Clearly, like nobody, there's no single guy who's going to go over there and completely change the dynamic of the sport. Even if George St. Pierre decided he wanted to go fight in Bellator, it still wouldn't cure the problem. There wouldn't be anybody for him to fight. You know, he'd go over there. Ben Askren's gone. He could go over there and fight Lyman Good, and then then I don't know what you do after that. So uh, uh, it's probably. Uh, financially speaking, a better idea for Bellator try to to try to build up their own guys. But you know, in the in the instances where they have the opportunity to go after a guy like Gilbert Melendez, I think it it makes sense. Uh, you know, if Bellator wants to be regarded as as a viable number two. Uh, well, before we run out of time, let's talk about this tough twenty thing, man. Uh, because clearly we had heard. Uh, up until this news broke, we, we thought that, uh, Anthony Pettis was going to fight, uh, Jose Aldo, even though there had been some questions about whether the timeline was going to work out. And clearly we approached the thing with, you know, urging some caution from Jose Aldo, probably want to hang on to that belt until the last possible minute, which I guess in retrospect seems like good advice. Yes. I don't know what you do at this point. If, if Jose Aldo had already uh, given up the belts and said he was going to go to 155. Yeah, I mean, already, I guess you can just give it back to him, but that still would have been weird. Or he's stuffing himself with Twinkies trying to make the weight. Uh, so now you have Gilbert Melendez, number one contender, a guy who's won eight of his last nine fights, and that one loss was the the close decision to Ben Henderson. But still a guy who's only one and one in the UFC uh, is now going to get this opportunity to go coach on, on season 20 of The Ultimate Fighter, which is also going to be one of the more interesting seasons of The Ultimate Fighter in the you know innumerable, innumerable uh, incarnations of that goddamn show. Innumerable? Because, innumerable? That's a word means that cannot easily be counted innumerable innumerable come on innumerable innumerable i don't know uh there have been a lot of seasons yes let's just say that uh but this is the one where you're gonna have straw weight women coming into the ufc for the first time we're gonna crown an actual goddamn ufc champion out of this thing uh all in all seems like a pretty good spot for gilbert melendez to land yeah, and it does seem like if if you're if you are going to start watching the Ultimate Fighter again, that's the one you're going to watch, Which right? I recommend, by the way. Yeah, well, no, we'll, I actually don't recommend that at all. Well, I mean, plus you're you're going to have your time eaten up by watching old Fedor clips on Fight Pass, so I don't know. I don't know how much free time you're going to have to watch it. But oh, we all have an endless amount of free time to just sit around and watch UFC all the time. <laughs> no, but it does seem like pretty good option for him all the way around. I assume he's going to bring uh, a bunch of Caesar Gracie dudes on there, just flipping middle fingers and just acting rambunctious left and right. It should be a good time, man. It should yes. be a really good time. Him and yes. Pretty Tony. Oh, if if there's one thing I'm excited about this whole thing, it's uh, Team Cesar Gracie and Team Duke Rufus, yeah, uh, being in the same gym yeah, uh, together right. for the for the whole time. Oh. There's there's a lot of characters that could show up. Yeah, and on pretty this show. Pretty Tony can bring all you know the guys, the various guys that he's got for various things. Oh, this guy needs a tough weight cut. Pretty Tony's got a guy for that. Huh? Trying to get some free range chicken breasts in the, to cook in the house. Huh? You need to you need to pull off an awesome prank. Pretty Tony's probably got some guys. It would be pretty awesome if part of Anthony Pettis's uh uh coaching of the 115 pound women on this show would be to teach them how to style and profile like he's Ric Flair or something like he's going to hand out advice about which watch to get and which suit to wear once you become the champion. I'd well, watch that. I would probably rather watch that than some dudes peeing in a fruit plate. <laughs> That's a good point. And I don't know, I mean 
I think that uh, Anthony Pettis, if there is one male fighter who could offer some useful grooming tips to, to female fighters out there, it's probably Anthony Pettis, man. Look at that guy. No, he looks good. There's no doubt about it. All right, let's do just saying stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Uh, are we gonna, we're going to do a joint just yeah, saying stuff we, this we week? Have, we have a joint just saying okay, stuff. Okay, then we both, are we going to do our own, or are we just going to do one? This is your play. We're calling an audible here. Okay. Well, I, we were talking about this earlier, uh, and... I'm just saying, Chad, there's a UFC event this weekend in Macau. What? Macau. Macau. Uh, Yeah, it's the Ultimate Fighter China finale. That's not a real thing. It's on Fight Pass. It starts at 6 a.m. here in the One True Time Zone. Uh, And we were thinking, what should we... Do we need to talk about it? You know, we definitely did not want Today, to devote... During, during our production meeting. Yeah, we definitely did not want to devote a whole round to it. So we thought, well, maybe we'll get some listener mail about it. We can talk about it that way. Zero listener mail questions about this thing. one question. Not even one being like, what the fuck is this thing? You know, not even like just like a really negative one. Not even one that just asked us to discuss nothing. And I'm also just saying... I bet you listened to this entire hour-ish long podcast, and it never even occurred to you to wonder, hey, are they going to talk about the Tough China finale? Why haven't they talked about the Tough China finale? What about Matt Mitrione's big fight against Sean Jordan? Yeah. What what, what about uh, Nam Fan and Bon Lee? Why why haven't they talked about that? And they always talk about the, the event that's coming up that weekend. I bet it never even occurred to you to wonder that. And I'm just saying, that tells us something about this event. Just saying. Just saying. You know, it seems like some enterprising CME listener could have basically cakewalked their way into a listener mail question this week if they just would have taken the time to write one question about uh, tough China. People on the UG talking about, oh, man, I'm 0 for 6 with my listener mail questions. This was your opportunity. This was it. Yeah, this was one that's worth getting fired from the coffee shop over. That's right. Sending a listener mail question instead of work on the drive-thru. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at the tough finale of the Tough China don't, show. Don't even think that you're coming over to my house and watching this on my fight pass. I will be there at 6 a.m. <laughs> don't Wearing my PJs. Think about it. My sleeping cap. Just on principle alone, I will not even allow you to get close to my laptop. <laughs> I won't even. If, I'm going to watch it, and I'm not even going to tell you what I saw. Do they even have it set up so you can watch Fight Pass on your Roku or your Apple TV yet? I don't know. There's some trickery you can do to make stuff that you play on your computer show up on your TV, but old guys like us don't know how to do that stuff. That's just embarrassing. All right. uh, That's going to do it for this week. We'll be back next week to talk a whole bunch more MMA stuff. As for right now, we're done. We are through. We are out. The really annoying thing about us not getting a question about it is that we didn't get a chance to yell a cow over and over again at each other. Right. We'll break down the prospects of my guy, John Hathaway. Is there any fight on this? Yes. John